Good morning. Last year, Dr. Angela Reed and I received a small grant from the Baylor Institute of Oral History to conduct a research project. We interviewed 10 Texas Baptist congregational ministers. We said that rather than pastors because we wanted to be able to talk to women too in Texas. <laughs> 10 Texas Baptist congregational ministers who had been in ministry 20 years or more and who were still happy about it. Uh, some of those had been in ministry far longer than that. And we were interested in hearing their story and hearing what had given them life in ministry and sustained them for more than two decades in congregational life, doing that good and sometimes difficult work of caring for God's people. Of course, we heard a lot of factors, spiritual practices, training, supportive, loving congregations, family, other variables. But the one thing we consistently heard from these women and men was that they had been sustained, especially in difficult times, by a sense of having been called to that work. Called to that work. I was not surprised. In fact, I really expected to hear that. In the Old Testament, it's Jeremiah whose call holds him to a thankless task of preaching and over decades to God's people, this unquenchable fire in his bones that he would gladly have walked away from, but he wanted to, and honestly, on some days he was ready to, but he could not. And in the New Testament, it may be Paul as much as any who, despite shipwrecks and betrayals and conflicts and stonings and imprisonments, finds himself so deeply rooted in a call that just will not release him from its grip. And so he continues to follow. I grew up hearing the story of Paul on the Damascus Road described as the conversion of Saul. Clearly he was converted. Saul the Pharisee in a few moments became Paul the Christian. His thinking was turned around in a few moments. He had to believe the world in a different way from that moment on. Even his blinded eyes could see pretty clearly that despite what he had believed a few moments before, the crucified Jesus was in fact the risen Lord. He could see that Despite his efforts at following the law from his pharisaical training, he had found himself only in opposition to God, not in relationship with God. And so there must be another way to God. And the fact that he was still drawing air after having met the risen Christ must mean grace is the way to find that. He must have known almost immediately that we were living in the last days because the resurrection has clearly begun Yet here he was still living, and so there must be a not yet to God's kingdom. All of these kinds of things radically revised his thinking in just a moment. Some serious conversion took place in that moment. But more than a conversion took place, I'm persuaded. The Damascus Road was a moment of call. Saul the Pharisee did not simply become Paul the Christian. He became Paul the Apostle, Paul the Sent One, Paul the Missionary, Paul the Proclaimer of the Good News to the Nations. That changed in a moment. We're most familiar with that call as it's narrated in Acts chapter 9 and then in Paul's own words in the story later in chapter 22 and 26. But the fact is when you listen carefully to Paul's own writing, you hear that call echoing again and again in his own words. Shaping his understanding of his role, of his life, of his understanding of who God is and what God is doing. That call was formative in his life over a long period of time. Some years ago, a Korean scholar named Se-Yoon Kim produced a doctoral thesis 
under the tutelage of the brilliant Scottish New Testament professor F.F. Bruce. The book was called The Origin of Paul's Gospel. Kim argued that not only did Paul receive his call to apostleship on the Damascus Road, he also received his essential gospel on the Damascus Road. There were things that he understood from that moment on that shaped the gospel he would preach. And then Kim definitely identifies one passage after another in Paul's letters that show up this moment of call. Places I had passed over before never seeing a connection between that passage and the Damascus Road. One of the more familiar of Paul's appeals to that Christophany is the paragraph in the letter to Philippians, which we heard a portion of read this morning. Written from a prison cell, he once more turns to the sustaining vision of his call to give him peace and to express his hope and his confidence to his friends. This morning, I just want to point you to the end of that passage, verses 15 and 16. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. In other words, if you don't agree with me, just give it time. God will show you that I'm right, I think. <laughs> Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Paul in no way insists that our call should look like his, that we should have some Damascus Road experience. In fact, it seems to me that those more dramatic kinds of call experiences in the Bible are most often reserved for the more recalcitrant subjects of God. It, for some, it takes hungry fish and storms at sea and burning bushes and um, Damascus Road brilliant lights blinding us to get our attention. There are plenty of stories of call in Scripture in which all it takes is, and the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, and they responded with obedience. Those stories get our attention, but uh, the other forms of call are seen just as effective in enlisting men and women in the service of God. But although he says, doesn't say our call should look like his, I do think the apostle insists that our following after Christ should share some things in common with his. In particular, he says that this obedience to his call is what has shaped and formed him over decades into the person that he is. It has this maturing effect as he's obeyed the heavenly vision. And in the same way, I think, following our call to ministry in our lives requires and produces a kind of growing maturity in Christ, a perspective on life, perspective on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a perspective on ministry. Our, following our call over time produces what could be called a kind of vocational maturity. It's really unfortunate, especially for many churches, that a call to ministry is not immediately accompanied by an instant maturity. But it's not. You answer the call, and then you grow into it. It takes you places you would not have gone. It asks things of you that you would not have done. It requires things of you that stretch you and change you and shape you. It takes you to places that are both glorious and miserable. It takes you to places full of grief and joy. And over time, vocational maturity is the product of that process Eugene Peterson described as a long obedience in the same direction. The faithful following of the call produces vocational ministry. What does that look like? How do you recognize it? 
Paul seems to indicate that men and women are mature in their calling when they take such a perspective on life and discipleship as he holds, as that he's just expressed in verses 7 to 14. That has formed him over the years. How might we recognize such a thing in us? Vocational maturity maintains a kind of focus, intense focus, on what is most important in life. Once the call has come, our attention cannot be given in three directions or five directions or even two directions. Once the call has come, there is this focus on what is most important in life. Maturing people can answer the question, what to you is most valuable? They have at the core of their character something something of enough significance that it forms a kind of center of gravity that holds their life in place and gives meaning to other things that orbit around it. It's the mark of childhood, the mark of immaturity, that we can't distinguish the valuable from the common. One of my favorite poets, he's fairly deep, is Shel Silverstein. And he has a poem called Smart. My dad gave me one dollar bill because I'm his smartest son. And I swapped it for two shiny quarters. Because two is more than one. And then I took the quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I guess he don't know that three is more than two. Just then along came old Blind Bates. And just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes. And four is more than three. I took the nickels to Hiram Combs down at the seed feed store. And the fool gave me five pennies for them. And five is more than four. And then I went and showed my dad. And he got red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head. Too proud of me to speak. It's like that with life in God. Mature people have learned to distinguish what is most important, what is most valuable. They live with a sense of that at the core of their being. Paul has a series of plays on words in this passage that I find attractive. He, he says in verses 12 and 13, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to take it, have taken hold of it. This word of Paul's catalambano, to, to seize, to possess, to apprehend. Paul was apprehended on the Damascus road. He was arrested, apprehended, even as he was on his way to Damascus, to apprehend Christians, to arrest them and put them in jail. Paul is convinced that Christ apprehended him, laid hold of him with a purpose in mind. And he's personally determined to apprehend that purpose that God has for him, to seize it and possess it. And that has changed his sense of values, that moment of call. He says so in this passage. Once there were all kinds of things that he would have put on his resume and said, these are the most valuable things to me. But he says, now, I count all of that but dung in order that I can have the most important thing, which is obedience to the heavenly vision, obedience to the call. He describes that purpose of God for him in terms of pressing on toward the goal to win the prize for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, verse 14. This is for him the answer to the question, what is most important? It is to attain, to live fully into the purpose for which God had summoned him in his call. That is the most important thing. Vocational maturity grasps the truth that God is engaged in working out his redemptive purposes in the world and in Christ. And wonder of wonders, he has invited you and me to have a part to play and has invited us into that in our call. What could be more important in our lives? 
God, of course, calls all who will to follow Jesus Christ. Paul refers to the Corinthian Christians as called saints, called as an adjective. That's the kind of saints they are. They are called saints. They are saints who have been called. It's not that they've just been named saints. They are called saints. But in the same way he understands himself to be a called apostle, called as an adjective, it's the kind of apostle he is. He's been invited to apostleship. He is called, he's a called apostle to serve God's purposes among God's people in a unique way. That same sort of distinction is made with a slightly different word in Ephesians chapter 4. He gave, Paul says, he could have said he called, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. You who have accepted an invitation from God to work among his people in the world, leading them toward an abundant life in Christ, leading them to life in community and in service to the world, you've responded to a call, and this call works on us to mature us. One of the chief ways this call shapes us is by forcing us to decide what is most important in life. If Christ has called us, what other voice could be more important to hear and respond to? If Christ insists that we have a role to play in his mission in the world and with his people in the world, what more important role could there be for us to seek? If Christ hopes for us to serve his kingdom by serving his people, what greater service might we ever imagine? To begin to grasp the weight of God's purpose for us wrapped up in that call is to begin to mature in the capacity to sort out what is valuable from what is less so. To fail to place God's call at the core of our being and thinking is to ensure an immaturity. We will find ourselves living without a purpose, living with too many purposes, living with too small a purpose, living for selfish purposes. One primary mark of maturity is that a mature person can and does make judgments about what is most valuable. And for one responding to the call of God in Christ Jesus, it is this call that matters more than anything else. For Paul, it was so. And he said, if you're mature, you'll start thinking this way. In vocational ministry, maturity also commits itself to the things that matter most. That's important. It follows that if we know with confidence what the most important thing is, a mature person would say, what do I have to do to align everything that goes on in my life toward that end? How do I pursue the most important thing? And again, you hear Paul's words, this one thing I do. Because I have been called, this one thing I do. He plays with words again. This time it's the word dioko, the word that means to press after. It can also mean to persecute, pursue. He says in verse 6 that in his past he was marked by his zeal persecuting the church, using that word. Verses 13 and 14, he says, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I pursue, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul had once pursued what he believed to be the will of God, pursuing the church, persecuting the church. But now having met Christ, he's determined to pursue Christ's purposes for him. The pursuit has become a commitment, like an Olympic athlete in the middle of the race. Only one thing matters, and that's the finish line. Literally, he says, I pursued down along the marks. I press on, on the way toward this goal. The older we get, the more likely we are to make some pretty heavy commitments in our life. We start making them in our 20s and 30s, commitments we can't easily walk away from. 
not without serious consequences anyway. Some young people enlist in the military. Some walk down an aisle toward a man they're going to marry or wait at the end of the aisle for the woman they're going to marry. Some sign 30-year mortgages. Some bear children. These are serious commitments. You don't walk away from them because they get boring or you're tired or they're difficult. Because we see them as valuable, we understand we have to stick with them in organized life to achieve them. And a commitment to the call of Christ is more challenging, I think, than any of those. The decision to take hold of God's purpose in life means that you place what God wants ahead of what you want. And that's a difficult thing for most of us to do. It's an act of maturity to be able to set aside the temptations or lures of the moment for the bigger view. The commitment to something larger than ourselves or more important But once we have that most important thing identified, it becomes easier to say this one thing I do. Stephen Covey said that it's easier to say no when there is a deeper yes burning within. It's a mark of immaturity to know what is best and to pursue second best. It's a mark of immaturity to be unwilling to let go of that which gratifies instantly in favor of that which only gratifies more distantly. So the call of God like the kingdom of God, is that treasure in a field. It is that uh, pearl of great price. It is that plow that one sets one's hand to and does not turn back. It is a mark of maturity that when one answers the question, what is most important, that one orders life in pursuit of that value. Already that's meant reordering your lives in some serious ways to make space and time and finances available for theological training and education. That required a degree of maturity. But you will constantly be asked to let the calling of God in your life dominate your decisions about life, where your life is invested, how it is lived, and with whom. That's a mark of maturity, paying a price to have that which is most valuable. And vocational maturity lives then into a horizon of continued growth over a lifetime of ministry. A few years ago, I attended a conference in Port Aransas with Leonard Sweet, some of you may know that name, and Bill Eason, two prominent Methodist church consultants. They were mostly Methodist pastors there, just three Baptists among them. And we were sitting to Leonard, listening to Leonard Sweet do as Leonard Sweet only can do, pontificating about the future in creative ways and exploding your head with his ideas and his knowledge and we were there and he was talking a lot about the future and the church's engagement of the future and the the church and technology and the church and changing society and postmodern culture and on and on he was going and there was a break and during the break as we were shuffling around getting ready to leave the room two older Methodist pastors sitting behind me were getting their things together and one turned the other and said I am so glad I'm about to retire and don't have to deal with all that And for me, I thought that was one of the saddest things I've ever heard a pastor say. To be alive at this time, to be serving the church at this time, just because it's hard, just because it's challenging, just because I don't yet know what to do, just because it's going to require growth and learning, it's not a thing to walk away from. Vocational maturity lives in a horizon of continued growth over a lifetime of ministry. A runner in a race will never win without an excellent idea about where the finish line is. 
To quit before you cross the line guarantees the loss of the race. It doesn't matter that you can say, well, I ran further or faster than most. If you didn't cross the line, you didn't finish the race. And when it comes to service and ministry and discipleship, maturing people know they've not arrived yet. The horizon for growth always lies before us. And Paul offers another play on words in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this or I've already been made perfect. And then he says in verse 15, all of us who are mature. Same word, verbal form, noun form. I haven't been made perfect, but I am maturing. It's a play on the words. And those who get it understand they haven't got it. It's kind of a catch-22. The irony is that truly maturing people are most aware of their need for growth and maturity. It's the immature who think they've arrived, who presume to have the answers when they have not yet encountered all the questions. Maturing people understand the horizon of the future is where leverage is for growth. You can't do a lot about the past, but the future is the place where change can happen. The future is the place that can still be shaped. And the immature gets so stuck in the past, they cannot let go of some experience they had long ago, positive or negative, and try to either replicate that or shed themselves of it. Or they may be paralyzed in the present, just afraid to move forward because the future looks so different than the present does, and they're comfortable in the present. Life is spent trying to preserve or recreate a past, and in the consequence of that is a kind of paralysis. Maturing people learn from the past. They build on the past, but they don't live in the past. The horizon is before them. Life is a journey or a race. One succeeds in such an endeavor only by moving forward, not by standing still or moving backward. And so Paul hasn't had another wordplay here. He's found a kind of holy forgetfulness that serves him well in facing the future. Forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, plays with these two words, forgetting, epilanthanomai, to lose out of mind, to neglect, to forget. He saved the usefulness of the past, renouncing both the successes and the failures. But tomorrow is more important than yesterday. Hope is more valuable than memory, and he's moving forward. Epilanthanomai, and epictinomai, straining toward, stretching toward, reaching forward. That's my orientation toward life. Leaning toward this horizon where maturity is still always out in front of me. In C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian, Lucy Pavinzi encounters Aslan, the lion, after a long separation. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Martin Luther said, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. It is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. It's a process. It's a journey. I press on. That's the kind of journey we are on. We are called to know the eternal one, the God who is infinite in nature. You ever wondered about how long it might take to get to know an infinite being? Eternity, I, I suppose. Vocationally mature people know that and stay on the journey. 
Vocational maturity is one of those things we may as easily recognize by its absence as by its presence. Immaturity stands out as much as maturity does. We call attention to it in others all the time. In the life of pursuing Christ's call upon our life, immaturity looks like a self-righteousness that thinks it's already arrived and needs no more stretching, growing, development, or accomplishment. It judges others by a standard it has reached rather than judging itself by the standard of Christ. Immaturity looks like a life focused on a self-centered agenda that's hardly worth the time of a human life, or it may lack a sense of purpose altogether. Sometimes immaturity appears as one attempting so many things that life is fragmented and unfulfilled, rather than saying this one thing I do, there are these 30 things I dabble in. Immaturity may know the right things to do, but because they're difficult or because they conflict with their desires, it neglects them in favor of immediate pleasure or gratification. Immaturity is the undisciplined life, the life that takes the short view of things. Immaturity looks like a life weighed down by its past. It is burdened by sins and failures and faults as if Jesus had never died on the cross to provide forgiveness. Immaturity clings to those failures and refuses to move on. Or immaturity may look at a past full of achievements and determine that enough is enough. Others can take it from here. Or immaturity may look on the past at the place of familiarity, safety, and security. And in so doing, it may refuse to live with the courage that the future requires. Maturity, on the other hand, always recognizes that it has a way to go and is challenged and humbled by that. Maturity knows it has not arrived and is unlikely to judge others. Maturity lives confidently in the knowledge that God has laid hold of her life for a purpose. Following Jesus day by day fulfills that purpose. It may be many things or few, a long time or little, great things in the eyes of people or small ones, but it is a life lived for Jesus' purposes only, day in and day out. Maturity has the discipline to translate that confidence into action. The temporary is laid aside in favor of the eternal. Maturity pursues the most important things in life with a determination to grasp them. Life is reshaped and reordered as needed to make best a possibility. And maturity focuses on the future. Maturity knows God is the God of the future, the God of hope, the God of the exodus and the empty tomb, the God who stands in the future and invites his people to come to him, the God who says, behold, I make all things new. The maturing follower of Jesus delights in this hope, lays aside the weight of the past with its successes and failures, and strains every fiber of its being to reach forward for the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we have not yet attained or been made perfect. Sometimes we talk and act as if we have, but we have not. We ask you to both humble us and challenge us with the consciousness of our immaturity. Help us to live consistent with the level we have so far attained. And we will trust you to reveal to us those places where you desire to take our lives deeper. Forgive us of our self-righteousness, our despair, our small purposes, our many purposes, our lack of priority, our laziness, our fear, our clinging to our past. We acknowledge that you died to free us from just such things. Refine our callings, Lord. Take us forward. Lift our eyes to seek the future you have for us. Let us be encouraged by what you yet have for us rather than being overwhelmed by how far we still have to go. Let us hear in your desires for us the promise and commitment you bring to fulfill them. And I pray this morning for those who need to decide what they most deeply long for in life is Christ. Give them the courage to move toward it. In Jesus' name, amen.